Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Legal Class Ceilings. This afternoon, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Reagan Persaud, who's our guest today. Reagan is a barrister. She works in the Leeds and Northwest Circuit in the UK. She's a family barrister. And this series is all about people who have come to the law in unusual ways or who face unusual challenges, challenges that most other people don't face. And Reagan is there in spades. She was born as a man. She was born abroad. She transitioned whilst she was a barrister. And she's now developed a successful family practice in the Northwest under the identity that she always felt was hers. So she's someone who has been on a remarkable journey. And Reagan, welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. Now, Reagan, let's start at the very beginning. Where is your family from? Where did you grow up? Well, I'm from South America, um, what is now called Guyana. A lot of people know it as British Guyana because it was part of the British Empire and part of the colony many years ago. And it's interesting because my bloodline is mostly Indian with some African in me and all from the slave trade and indentured labourers back in the day. So I'm I'm probably more Asian and African, but with a Caribbean culture. (laughs) That feels like you know, winning the jackpot, having all the advantages <laughs> in one. Um, anyway, so so you grew up in Guyana. Tell me about your family. Um, well, my uh, my mom and my sister live here. My dad lives back home. But I suppose we came here because I don't know if you remember when Tony Blair was having nurses into the country, and there was this mask. We mask. We need to get nurses in. The NHS needs nurses. And so my mother came over here, and I was. 11 or 12 at the time, or maybe 13, but very young, actually. And we, my sister and I came to England with my mother at that point. And so we've, we're a small three in England, but I couldn't think of living anywhere else. But tell me a little bit about the first 10 years in Guyana. What was life like? Was it tough? I don't, if I'm honest, David, I think, it, I think it was, but I don't remember much of it. What I can tell you, I do remember is that it was very different culturally in the sense of when you get home from school, if you were hungry, we had mango trees and banana trees and all the rest in the back. You just go back and pick something and eat it and then probably have an afternoon nap in the sun. It was that kind of life, you know, maybe maybe a lot more relaxed. Culturally, yes, I think I think my, my parents found it very hard financially. I know my mother did, or at least so I'm told. I don't remember much of it. But I think the setting is very different in terms of how you behave in England, the social norms. They were very different and was somewhat of a culture shock when I moved to England. So you're aged 11. Where in England did you end up? We ended up in Chesterfield, which is a tiny little town outside of Sheffield. <laughs> With a twisted spire, isn't it? In, With a twisted spire, yes, that's exactly the one. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been there on a number of occasions. It's, uh, it was Tony Blend's constituency. I, I remember that. Yeah. Um, um, so you landed in Chesterfield in the fog and the cold and the rain and the South Yorkshire welcome. How did you feel? I think, as I say, it was a big culture shock. It was the weather didn't bother me as much, interestingly, because I we used to go to New York quite a lot for holidays. So we 
already had sort of some, I suppose, what's the word I'm looking for? Exposure to the cold. That wasn't too much of an issue. My mother found it hard, I think, 40 something years in a warm country and then to live in England. Mm. Um, But I didn't find it too difficult. Saying that, as I've got an older David, these back pains have come in and I can't help but wonder if these winters are responsible. (laughs) But well. I'm a good deal older than you, and I suspect the back pains are even worse. But uh, um, so tell me about school. Yeah. What sort of school was it? Was it a standard school? Was it a Catholic school? What sort of school was it? It was a Catholic school. We went to Catholic school, me and my sister. The teaching programme was similar, and I was always very smart. But I think the thing that took me by surprise were the cultural differences. So even down to the language you would use, the way you would interact with each other, was very different. In the Caribbean, for instance, you don't add a please at the beginning of every sentence when you ask for something. It's implied by the tone that you might take. So if I said to you, oh, will you hand me that rubber? Um, It's implied that there's a please there because I haven't shouted at you. (laughs) Whereas in England, as you can imagine, there was a lot of please, Reagan. And that's a very small cultural difference, but it's one that I always remember was learning my please and thank yous all over again. So, yeah, so so there were cultural differences that I had to adjust to. There were even words that I had to relearn because some of them I didn't realise were actually just Caribbean words, not not English words. It took me a while to settle in. I didn't initially make friends and have a lot of friends. That took time. And I think that's when as well, around that age, around 12, was when a lot of the issues about being trans started to creep up. I didn't know they were called trans issues. But for me, obviously at 12, everyone divides off, don't they? The boys hang out with the boys. The girls hang out with the girls. Where does Reagan go in this little mixture? Because I just simply did not have a place. I had the place I was expected to go, which was to play football with the boys and to talk about girls and to do the things that most people would say is quite disgusting that little boys do, like fighting on each other and weird stuff like that. The girls are where I wanted to be, but I wasn't welcome in that circle. And I think I ended up being somewhat of a loner for a very long time, whilst me myself figured out what my identity was. Everyone else thought I was a gay man. And for a long time, David, I did live as a gay man, because I, not because I thought I was gay, but because everyone else was telling me, that's who you are. You're very feminine. I've always been naturally feminine. And so... Everyone was telling me, oh, you're gay. That's what it'll be. Reagan's gay. I didn't quite know what I was. And eventually, I think when I was 15 or so, I came out as as gay thinking, oh, that must be what it is. I'm feminine. I like boys. That must be what it is. And I drifted towards the queer community and the queer spaces, which were very welcoming and friendly. But I have to say, as I then progressed and grew older, went to university, had a boyfriend, I very quickly realised that I still didn't fit in. I was maybe closer to who I was, but I wasn't quite who I was. And it wasn't until sort of my early 20s, early to mid 20s, that the penny had dropped that I'm trans. One thing I'm really interested in is, I don't know whether you agree with this, I think there's a revolution in young people's understanding of trans issues in the last decade. And that an awful lot of children who are trans wouldn't have identified themselves as such Mm. 10, 15, 20 years ago. And one of the reasons there's been an explosion in referrals is just an explosion in awareness. I don't know whether that fits with your your history, your understanding. I think it absolutely does, David. Um, When I was younger, trans wasn't a thing. 
but I can now that I am trans and transitioned and I can look at my whole life because hindsight is a wonderful thing I can see signs from say when I was four that I was more trans than I was anything else I remember at four I genuinely wanted to be a girl and thought I was a girl until someone told me no Reagan you're a boy I would walk around in my head thinking I'm a girl and I remember my mother because we were very Catholic said to me oh if you ask Jesus for anything you'll get it so David I got on my knees every night for what must have been years asking to wake up a girl and and hoping and praying and the next day waking up and checking the mirror (laughs) to see if I was a girl and that was when I was four but the problem was there was no space for that there was no understanding of what that meant and actually if you if you if you ask me honestly I would say I wish I did know more about it because had I known more about it and be able to identify that that's what that's who I was I probably would have transitioned well in fact I know I would have transitioned sooner Thankfully, I didn't transition that late. But I do think that awareness point is a valid one because people simply don't know. And it's good that diversity and understanding is more out there now to help more people to know who they are, to help more people to figure this out sooner. That must be a good thing. That's fascinating. And as as you may know, I've, I've been heavily involved in doing cases around trans children the last four or five years and trying to explain the explosion in referrals to the mm-hmm. one NHS clinic that deals with trans children, which has its own problems, Tavistock Clinic. And what you're saying is actually part of this is just a, simply a, a, a change of understanding amongst children themselves. Absolutely. I think you're right about that. Moving away from the general, back to the particular, back to you. So we have a sensitive feminine boy growing up in Chesterfield, doing well at school? Doing well at school. I've always been naturally smart. Didn't matter really, yes. Definitely doing well at school. And plotting a career to university? And where did you decide to go to university? So I interviewed at Oxford, and I remember I didn't get that. That, that wasn't for me, apparently. But I their error, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I like to think so, David. <laughs> I ultimately ended up at LSE, so the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I don't think it could have been a better fit in any way. It was the perfect little lefty setting for me and my radical ideas. (laughs) And so I stayed at LSE for three years, three wonderful years, and did law. I read law. As a visiting professor of health law at the LSE, I'm delighted to hear that. So tell me about how you responded to the law and why and in particular why did you choose law i wish i could say to you and everyone listening that there is some hugely philosophical story that started me off i think there's a philosophical story as to why i stayed on this path but i'll tell you the truth about what started me off i had a friend at school in sixth form and none of us really knew what we wanted to do and i was very gifted i'll, I'll admit that i've been lucky in the world to have that blessing So I managed to do A-levels that could give me law or medicine as an option, just because I hadn't decided. And being honest, from a cultural perspective, those were my only two options with my mother. And I remember that I flipped a coin, David, because my friend had told me, oh, law earns really, really well, and you'll do really well there as a result. So I flipped a coin, and it landed on law. And 
that's how I ended up in it. I would have chosen medicine, I think, no matter what that coin said. But after having that conversation with him, when that coin landed, I thought, well, that's it. Now, that's terrible because I'm sure there are people out there who will say, I've wanted to do this as my dream job. I, I will be honest, I wanted to be an agony aunt. I'm a very nosy person, David, and the idea of telling people their business really appealed to me at the time. But I ended up flipping that coin, landed on law. And then if you're asking me why I've stayed in law and why I've practiced in particular in the area I do, which is child protection, I think that is because I get to make a difference. That is because I help to assist the most vulnerable people, probably the hardest point in their lives. It's when their children are being removed from their care. And for me, and I, and I, I think my life experiences lends to this, that, that it helps me to show empathy and understanding for me that's hugely important. So that's why I've stayed in law, is the type of work I do. One of the features of family law, I sit as a family law judge, is that many of the people who come up before the family law system, in one way or another, are at the margins of society. They're either people with learning difficulties, they're people who are from communities which have challenging ways of bringing up children, or they're just life's inadequates. And having empathy, having understanding for those must be such a boon. And do you think that comes from your own personal experience of having started at the margins? I think that probably has a large part to play with it, David. You know, in South America, in Guyana, you are seeing the extremes of poverty. You're seeing the extremes of how a lack of education can affect people's understanding and the way they function. You are seeing the extremes of abusive relationships. You are seeing the extremes of the impact on children of all of those things. And as I've grown up, I mean, Chesterfield is, was lovely, but it, it was a poor town at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, and as I've grown up, I think I've learned a lot about the struggles that the everyday person can have. And I like to think that as a barrister and in this area of law, maybe one of my greatest strengths is the ability to empathize with that, is the ability to understand the things my clients will tell me when they explain why they struggle to look after their children, when they explain why they struggle to engage with social services. In my job, I think I've learned that very rarely do we actually come across a genuinely bad parent who can't look after their child. Most of the time, what we're dealing with is, is people who have a lot of their own issues, people who are suffering in their own way, whether that be as a product of their childhood experiences or otherwise. And the best we can hope to do is to be kind to them, to help the judges to understand their struggle. I, I think I do that better because of my life experiences, because of the fact that I can relate to the things that they might tell me. I, mean, I think that's so true and so fascinating. There came a time when you decided that the bar was the right thing and pupillage. How was the process of applying for pupillage? Oh, that was painful, David. That was absolutely painful. I started in my second year of my law degree and it took me four years to get a pupillage. Many no's before this, this yes door was opened. I think at the time it was very cloak and dagger to know exactly what was required how you would stand out. And I think looking back, because I was even thinking about this last week, 
there are so many chambers that do these seminars that say, come and meet us. Everyone's welcome. Everyone is, is able to apply. And then you look at their website, David, and the last 10 years is nothing but white. And you think, well, really, <laughs> why are you inviting me in here to show me, to make me believe that you really are open to the prospect of hiring someone like me? Um, and I think back then, maybe I fell into that trap. I applied to a lot of sets who realistically were only going to go for Oxbridge candidates. Whether or not they realised it, were probably only going to go for white candidates. They were looking for a set type of candidate. Eventually, I got an opportunity with what was 37 Park Square in Leeds and is now Spire, the set I'm with. And I was able to prosper at that point. But it was a painful journey. I wouldn't say to anyone it wasn't a painful journey. So is one of the things that you're gently telling people to do is to look at the last five, ten years of tenants and see if there is evidence that they are open to people who are not from Oxbridge, people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities? I think, I think yes. I mean... It's hard, and I would like to think that the world is changing. I certainly hope it was changing from when I was applying, which would have been around 10 years ago. I think more, more people are open to, to diverse candidates and to appreciating the skill set that they can bring. There's no one way to get in anymore. But if you're asking me honestly, David, if you've been hiring for 10 years and you can't move away from one single Oxbridge candidate, find yourself one brown person, well, well maybe that person needs to think about, are they wasting their energies here? And, and I say that knowing that's not a nice thing to say, but I also say that wanting to be realistic to other people like myself who will be listening to this and wanting to know what to do, I would not want to mislead them into wasting their energies on that. Look for the sets that are more diverse. Look for the sets that are more willing to get involved in these issues. Look for the sets that actually have evidence that they can be true to their word. We're lawyers after all. Let's make the decisions on evidence. <laughs> so, I think yeah. that's, re that's really, really interesting. And if I'm going to flip it around the other way, I would say if with all the talent available from different universities, from different life experiences, you carry on recruiting white men who've been to private school and, and through Oxbridge, you're kind of missing out on the talent pool. Think it's it's just not a very smart thing to do. No, and, and I think I think everyone brings a different skill set. Of course, those candidates will bring wonderful skill sets as well. But for instance, I've always stood by, and I will proudly say, I am able to empathise with people going through a particularly difficult time in my area of practice because of my own life experiences. Now, someone else may manage that. Someone from Oxbridge may well manage that. But there is a pool of people like me who are able to do that, who can bring understanding to that profession, who can be a voice for people who are really struggling and who can't speak up. And you are missing that pool altogether. And, and I think if you are going to work in particularly the more, what's the word I'm looking for, people-focused areas of practice, so immigration, employment, family, crime, then there is something to be said about having those skills because you are working with people on the ground suffering. I think those are really wise words, which a lot of candidates who are listening to this will think and look at themselves in the mirror and try and identify what's, what are my real strengths. And if that's one of them, 
those are the areas to go into and exploit that strength. It's perhaps less important in tax law. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so right. you went to do pupillage at what's now Spire Chambers that I know very well. Lovely people, fantastic people. And at what point during pupillage or afterwards did you think, hold on a moment, I'm not just a gay man, there's something else going on? It was during pupillage, David, and it was terrifying. I think for me, it was an accumulation of many years of not feeling right, of genuinely walking down the street subconsciously, well, unconsciously knowing that I'm a woman until someone called me mate or buddy. And then I'd be pulled back to reality and I'd have to be reminded, oh, no, hang on, <laughs> you're not, you're, you're a boy. So it was lots of years of things like that that were there. And interestingly enough, the thing that made the penny drop was... I was driving on the motorway and I remember just looking down at my nails and I thought, oh, they'd be nicer if they were red. And don't ask me why, David, something that small just made the penny drop. And I went, oh, my gosh, you're trans. And that was the moment. And for me, I think that that was a few. There were a few reasons why. One, that was screaming at the back of my mind anyway, for many years since I was little that I, I was a girl. So it wasn't that big a leap to make. But two, I'd recently started reading a lot about trans issues, which had come to the forefront. And so at least I had the education then in my head. And I think the two finally just connected on the motorway. Now, I'm the kind of person, David, if, if something is to be remedied, if I am to achieve something, there's no messing about. It's going to happen. So after I made this realization, there was no way that I was just going to continue to live the way I was living. I had a conversation with my pupil supervisor and I suppose I needed to explain to her what I'd found out, what was going to happen. And David, I have to say, it was probably one of the most traumatic moments of my life. Now, I say that because there are not many transgender barristers. And when I was going to be doing this, I didn't know any. So to me, it was completely new. And because there's no one like me or wasn't anyone like me that I could see, I didn't know, and it's going to sound silly, but it's the truth. I didn't know I could be trans and a barrister. I thought if I transition, they'll disbar me. So when I had this conversation with my supervisor, it was very much done on the basis of, I'm going to be open and frank about what I've realized and what's going to happen next. I am going to transition. And I very much expected her response to be, well, you're going to have to leave chambers. Well, you're going, you're not going to be able to finish your pupillage. I remember my heart beating. I remember being hot, a little bit sweaty because I was panicking because I'd spent many years working towards the bar. And I thought, well, this is it. This is game over. But the thing is, David, when you know who you are, regardless of the hurdles that will come your way, including the loss of a career that I'd worked so tirelessly to achieve. I needed to be true to myself. I needed to be the real me now that I discovered this. And I was willing to sacrifice everything for it. I was willing to sacrifice my entire legal career for it. That's kind of really interesting for three reasons. First of all, as barristers, we work on precedent. Mm. And you were going into a situation where there was no precedent about to handle this situation. <laughs> no. <laughs> Secondly, you were pretty junior. And I don't suppose you had a full understanding of your right to equal treatment under the Equality Act at that point. 
but actually you were completely legally protected. And that sounds slightly crazy because there, there you were thinking that you were going to be disbarred. Were you aware of that? I think even as a pupil at the time, a trainee lawyer, when you have to face something like that, you don't worry about the legal technicalities. And I think this is why representation is so important in the world, because what mattered more at that point was whether or not I'd ever seen anyone like me at the bar, whether or not I had ever seen any trans practitioners doing this job. I hadn't, David. I'd never heard of any. I'd never seen any. This is all my years of researching chambers to apply for pupillages. You know, I'd looked at many a barrister profile. I'd read many a a case. I'd seen many different practitioners during mini pupillages. And because there was no one like me, I just thought, well, this isn't possible. Didn't necessarily think about the legal ramifications of it, if I'm honest, David. That's not where my brain was at at the time. And were you surprised by the goodwill? I was. I was very surprised. And I think, if anything, to this day, I've always had a lot of respect for my pupil supervisor, who has remained a very good friend, principally because of how well and how supportive she was about it. But make no mistakes, even though she was supportive of me, the one thing I always admired her for was her her frankness, her down-to-earth attitude. And it, it wasn't very long after I'd shared this news that she sat down with me to say, yes, you can come to the bar. Yes, you can be a practitioner, but you will have hurdles. People will People will not necessarily take you seriously. You will have to work harder than other people. And she didn't do that with any malice to her. She did that to try and help me. I mean, I'll give you an example, David. One of the things she did, which I always remember, was she bought me my first wig. It cost about £600. She took me to the store. She helped me pick it out. And I remember she said to me, don't pick certain wigs because you'll stand out too much. Pick one that, that helps you to look professional and sensible. It was a very good quality wig. She spent that money, bought it for me. And she was she was just that kind of person. She was very supportive. But she was very real about the struggle that I would have. And I think if it's one thing I'd pass on to anyone listening, it's don't for a moment think you'll come into this or any career and not have a struggle. But it isn't, it shouldn't be a hurdle from going there anyway. That's that's frank advice. And sadly, I think she was right, wasn't she? She absolutely was. There were people who were not prepared to instruct you because you were trans. When I went full-time, David, I always remember I did children law and I did finance work, financial remedies. I lost all of my financial remedies work overnight. Every solicitor that found out that I was trans, I was no longer booked for that case. And that always stays with me. That's not to say that's generally who those practitioners are. No, I I wouldn't say that at all. I just remember losing that, losing that very quickly. And it has taken me years to build a base of clients who have confidence in my abilities, um, notwithstanding the fact that I am trans. And I say notwithstanding because I think it, it is still an issue in the room. It is still an elephant in the room. There are good people out there who will invest in me, who will instruct me and who will see the talent that I bring. But there are people who will forever be held back by it. Can I ask how, what was your relationship with the clerks? Because in some ways the, the clerks are our advocates. They're the people who sell us, but they're also the people who 
in the past have been accused of having very traditional attitudes towards a whole range of minorities, traditionally women, but people from ethnic minorities. And one could imagine that as, as, as people from the trans community. How were the clerks? They were fantastic. I couldn't fault them in any way. They came together. They thought about how they would sell me. They made sure that all my strengths were advertised. They were supportive. I had a lot of well-being support during the transition process. And, you know, I was young, David. I was 24, 25. This was, this was really scary for me. I couldn't fault them, I have to say. I, I, was, I still don't fault them. They remain some of my strongest advocates. So, yes, maybe, maybe in some sets that would be an issue, but I think I got lucky in that sense. I'm not sure you got lucky. I think probably you didn't get unlucky. Yeah. Because my experience of clerks is that they're far more professional and they're far more attuned to equality and diversity issues mm. than, than they're ever given credit. Mm. Um, and there are some dinosaurs out there, but the vast majority are focused on doing the very best they can for all of their governments. Um, so it's good to hear that, that, that yours were too and supportive. Yeah. And it wasn't that long, David. I think in a couple of years, I had a client basically could keep me busy full time. So it didn't take me very long at all to build up a practice and to, to do well out of it. There were a lot of people who are supportive. There are a lot of people who remain supportive. But the initial shock, the initial transition was hard. I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't. And how about opponents? Was it ever raised? Was it oh, ever an issue? There, there were moments, David, they were certain judges who would stick to the mister and I'm sure that they would say that was a mistake but only doing it six seven times with a grin on your face I'm not so sure it was a mistake for some of them there were certain barristers and solicitors who would do the same who would refer to me as he to in front of either uh, the magistrates who obviously when you're junior you appear, appear a lot of in front of or district judges and again I'm sure these people would say oh it was a mistake but you could see the snigger on their face. You could see the little grin at the side of their mouth. And you knew. I mean, you know, people people have an instinct for these things. You know the people who are genuinely making a mistake and the people who are relishing in it. There was some of that. And it knocks you, David. That kind of thing knocks you hard. But you have to pick yourself up. You have to keep going because I think you will always have people who want to see you fail. And I could have very easily have made the choice either to not do this job or to do it up to a certain level because I wasn't going to face the tough opponents, the people who would try to throw me off, the people who would be malicious in that way. I wasn't going to let them win. Thankfully, I'm not at that point anymore. Thankfully, I pass well now, but it's taken a lot of hits. So impressive. So impressive. I'm sorry on behalf of the rest of the bar that judges' opponents were not as understanding and as sensitive and frankly, just getting on with the job, trying to score silly points, it does you great credit that you manage your way through it. And what, what are the future? Where, where are you going now? Where am I going now, David? I think I'm going to try for the bench. I think I can be good there. I can be the first. If I ever do it, I'll be the first BAME trans judge. So it's something to aim for, at least to try for. I always think you must try for these things in life. I would like to be a stronger advocate for people who maybe come from a similar background to me and have considered the legal profession. I think it, it worries me, David, that I remain the only BAME trans barrister in England and Wales. 
I worry about maybe people from my background don't think this profession is open to them, is accessible or is achievable. And so I would like to have the opportunity to be loud and proud about those types of things, to, to draw in real talent from my pool. I think that's as far ahead as I've thought, David. <laughs> well, just appearing on this podcast, being such a brilliant advocate for yourself, lays the foundation for others to follow. Tell me, you come through a very interesting course. What's the best bit of advice you were given? David, I always remember when I was little, my great grandmother gave me a bit of advice. Obviously, I'm not white. I come from a very poor background and I am still a foreigner. I moved here, you know, in my early teens. And my great grandmother always said to me, you will have to work a little bit harder than others, not because you're not talented enough, but you will need a better grade than the average white middle class man. You will have to have more experience than the average candidate because you have a certain background that will hold you back in this world. And I I think for anyone listening, for anyone coming from a diverse background, remember that we sadly live in a world where that is important, where if you are to succeed, you can't just be like everyone else. You have to have a little bit extra. You have to work a little bit harder. I say that knowing it's rather unkind. I say that knowing that it is a really unfair thing, but it is the reality of the world right now. And, and if I could pass on advice, it would be that. It would be remember that. Remember that you have to be a little bit better to get ahead. Because I think that stood me really well in my life and it's helped me to climb certain hurdles that I don't think otherwise I would have been able to. Well, I think that's really interesting advice which is think you have to be better than others to have equal opportunities. And it probably applies to people who came from a background with nobody going to university, for people with regional accents, with people who don't come from um, an established professional background. I think they too just have to be better. They have to work harder. They have to overcome the natural tendency we all have which we fight against, to appoint others of a similar vein. You just have to be better. And if you approach that as a barrister, you've got to know your papers better, you've got to do your legal research better, you've got to prepare better, you've got to do your cross-examination preparation better, and then actually you'll end up being the stronger advocate that you want to be. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I suppose it's an advantage in that sense because you will be very good. There's nothing wrong with being great. Um, But yes, you have to be that much better than the other candidate. That's sadly where we live. Yeah. You've talked a lot about wanting other people to see you as a pathfinder, to be able to follow you. What would you say to them, to somebody who's maybe in their early 20s, trans from a minority community, thinking about the bar, thinking the hurdles just seem too great. What would you say to them? For a very long time, I tried to hide who I was. I tried to speak a certain way. I tried to fit into certain social circles. For instance, I I don't like drinking that much. I drink, but not a lot. Culturally, it's not a big thing for us. And I would go out and party hard with other lawyers to try and fit into that circle. And it was betraying who I really was. Now, as I've gotten older, I've realized that there is power in diversity. There is power in authenticity. 
And actually being true to who you are will not be a disadvantage. You just have to find the right place that is there for you to appreciate who you are and what you offer. Anyone listening to me right now, don't don't change your circle to fit into a square. Be the circle and find where the circle will fit. Be who you are and love it because there will be people out there who will be ready and willing to lift you up and you can climb on your strengths and on your authenticity as much as anything else. I think that's a brilliant point to end. Regan, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your encouragement and very best of luck to you going forward. I look forward at some point to being in the same courtroom so I can hear you. But if that doesn't happen, I just think you are a fantastic role model. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Thank you for having me, David. Take care.